I'm Alina Jenkins and welcome back to the KI Prime podcast. In this episode, my conversation is with Jerome Rotgens. Originally from the Netherlands, Jerome is Assistant Professor of Medical Education Research at Lee Kong Chan School of Medicine in Singapore, where he's also Assistant Dean for Assessment and Lead for Learning Strategies. Jerome is active in two research areas. The first revolves around active learning and how these instructional approaches influence student motivation and knowledge acquisition. And the second looks at diagnostic reasoning in medicine. With his colleagues, they've embarked on a neuroscience research programme to examine the neuroscientific correlates of clinical reasoning. When I spoke to him in the autumn of 2020, he told me why he's using his research to look at the challenge of misdiagnosis. My research revolves mainly around clinical reasoning, but I'm particularly interested in in the diagnostic reasoning process. So that is when a a clinician, a doctor, generates a diagnosis based on the signs and symptoms that he or she observes in the patient and comes out with what what is the disease. And uh, not only in this process, but particularly what can go wrong. Because if you look at the the numbers, uh, every country has its statistics and it's a dire state. For example, in the United States, it's estimated that one in 20 outpatients every year are misdiagnosed. So that makes it about 12 million Americans who are misdiagnosed. And a lot of fatality. So it's a big problem. And you wouldn't expect it, right, from, from doctors. But a lot can go wrong. And we do not know an awful lot about what's going on in the brain of a doctor when he or she generates a diagnosis. And our research tries to cast some light on, the, on, on, on that. You're doing this in a groundbreaking way because you're using neuroscience to help try and solve this problem. Yeah. Before I do this, I have to to, to explain a little bit about the theoretical framework that is very dominant in this line of research. And it is dual process theory, which was introduced by uh, Lowell Price laureate Daniel Kahneman. Thinking fast, thinking slow. He wrote a very uh, influencing and uh, fascinating book. And uh, this theory also found its way to medicine. And it proposes that there are two independent competing brain systems. Uh, One is system one, that is the faster heuristic system, the automatic system. What is two times two? You immediately know the answer. Whereas there's also system two, which is the slow, the deliberate, the analytical system. Uh, What is three times 17? You know the answer, but it takes some time to to get the answer. And uh, this dual process theory is is, is the guiding framework in, in clinical reasoning. And uh, researchers who use this framework mainly rely on two behavioral indicators, two behavioral variables, and that is uh, response time and diagnostic accuracy. So what they found is that uh, somebody, a clinician who has more experience, would generate a diagnosis more accurate and faster than somebody with less experience. Uh, but we always felt there is a little bit, uh, there is more to it. It cannot be that simple because it could be the same brain system that just works sometimes faster, sometimes slower. So it, are these really two different brain systems? And we thought, well, if you we want to really find that out, we should not look at behavioral indicators, or observable indicators, but we should actually look at the brain where it happens, where the reasoning happens. And this is where we started to introduce neuroimaging uh, to it and, and measure many brain oxygenation while clinician or also students uh, a generator uh, diagnosis. And there we were able to, to demonstrate that 
Indeed, system one and system two reasoning are two independent brain systems. System two reasoning and the slow analytical reasoning is associated with a significant activation of the prefrontal cortex. And we know from other research that the prefrontal cortex is where, you know, all this complex decision-making is, uh, executive functions where you do all your calculations and system one reasoning somewhere else in the brain. And that really depends on what kind of speciality you are, you are in there, specialized centers around the, in the brain where this is active. But finding out that system two reasoning is activated in the prefrontal cortex, that was a major breakthrough and support for that theory because we could have all been wrong. And now it seems that there are indeed two, uh, two independent uh, uh, brain systems. And that led then to, to further research where we, are, uh, where we are now working on. So it sounds like you set off down this path, not knowing where it might lead you. What was exciting about this discovery? And also, what have been some of the challenges? I must say, to, to begin with, I was always highly sceptical in the neuroimaging. I, I did a lot of research in, in learning and in education. I'm an education psychologist, and I have, uh, was always pushed by my colleagues because in Singapore was an initiative to have a lot of funding for neuroimaging. And we said, let's do some more neuroimaging. And I always felt, why should I do this? And this was actually the first situation where I thought, hey, here it could make, uh, make sense, could really make a contribution to see what is really going on, enriching these two variables, behavioral variables that we have, by combining it with, uh, with brain activation. And it was uh, initially, uh, we didn't really know uh, because there was not much research from where to, where to measure. That was one of the major challenges. Uh, and there we had to rely mainly on research outside the field of, of medicine, where we then got some hints and uh, started to apply uh, some of the paradigms uh, to what we are doing. But it took a long, long time to develop a, a paradigm that we now apply in all our research, which I think is quite uh, distinct from, uh, from existing research that I think makes this quite a success. We are, of course, not the first who, who apply neuroimaging to the study of diagnostic reasoning in medicine. There are others who also did that. But what a lot of other researchers did is they always uh, applied a quasi-experimental approach. That, that means that, that what they did is they selected participants based on their level of expertise. For example, they took participants, uh, let's say fourth-year residents, who are supposedly have more knowledge, medical knowledge and expertise than first-year residents. And then they uh, gave them cases and they uh, measured the brain activation and said, OK, let's see, we, we, we hypothesize that the ones who have more experience would rely more on system one reasoning, whereas the ones who have less expertise was, uh, need more the system two reasoning, so the analytical part. We always felt that it's not, not, not that elegant, this approach, because you never really know if, if a fourth-year resident has really more expertise in the cases that you present. Other researchers did the opposite and they, they manipulated the cases. So they, for example, made the cases more ambiguous by removing important patient information. And then, you know, you have to, of course, I thought I said you have to, to switch more to the analytical part and uh, have to, to slow, deliberately try to, to generate a diagnosis. What we did is we said, well, let's not do this, not leave it over to chance. We just take a homogeneous group. And what we do is we train our participants on the spot for a certain, certain number of cases to become system one reasoners to become proficient in it. So while they are there, we develop expertise in them. And what we do is we take, for example, a number of cases, let's say eight, eight, eight cases uh, of, that represent different medical conditions. And half of these cases, we train them in so that they get better and better and better and better at it. And you cannot imagine that we repeat that 40, 50 times that they see the case and then they have to diagnose them. And they get it wrong, they get feedback. And then they do it over and over again uh, until they are very fast and very accurate in, uh, in diagnosing these cases. So we don't leave it over to, 
we expect you have this expertise, but we train them on the spot and it is our under our experimental control. And then during a test phase, then we give them these cases that they were trained in and we give them cases that they haven't seen before, which are of equal uh, difficulty level. And then we measure the brain and we assume that the cases that we were trained in, uh, that this is system one reasoning or the automatic reasoning and the cases that they haven't seen it, that they have to switch to the more uh, deliberate processing of, uh, of the information. And that is what you see in the brain. This the latter part is associated with prefrontal cortex activation associated with system two reasoning. And this now led to, to quite some interesting parts because this is more basic research. You would say, ah, well, you support, that is just support for the dual process theory. Well, what can you do with it? Right? Uh, what, what kind of are the practical implications? Well, we are not that far, although we have some ideas, but uh, the next uh, line of research that we started and now just completed is we study uh, the, or we measure the brain activation as uh, participants learn to diagnose cases. So not only the end product, but what happens in the brain when you learn to diagnose? Where are, is it a gradual process? Is it an abrupt process? How much effort does it take? Where are bottlenecks? And that you can see uh, all uh, in these brain scans. Uh, particularly what we see now is that there's significant, in line with the theory again, a significant decrease of prefrontal cortex activity uh, as there is a shift from system two reasoning to system one reasoning. And with this, you can, you know, for example, identify students or residents who are struggling with certain cases and then, you know, provide more of these cases to get uh, more proficient in it or other training techniques to help them to, to get more efficient in their learning. This is such a fascinating subject. And I read Daniel Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Slow. So when I was reading your research, I thought, well, that's what Kahneman was talking about, too. The idea of the instinctive reaction versus the analytical reaction. Are you also looking at how these two systems interact? Yeah, absolutely. You're absolutely right. It is, it is not black and white. Although sometimes when you look at the medical literature on this topic, that it seems that there are two camps, right? Some really support uh, the system one and others support system two. But uh, I think truth of the matter is that it's a combination of both. What we see now is that especially if you struggle with the lack of knowledge, the lack of experience, that you mainly have to rely on the system two in order to acquire knowledge. And the more proficient you get, uh, the less you need that system, and then it becomes pattern recognition, it becomes automatic. And this, this gradual shift is, in my view now, a representation not only of learning to diagnose, but I do, for example, also research now with air traffic controllers, where we train them on diagnosing uh, or analyzing uh, radar images, and the same brain pattern occur. We see it actually, there's other research on, on professional uh, sports people. Psychomotor activity is exactly the same pattern. And uh, so I think it's an underlying part. And it is not only so simple from a shift from system two to system one, but for example, now that we study what's going on during learning, we present different cases that we sometimes also now try to, to hint to uh, participants to maybe switch to the analytical part. And there are certain techniques that we ask them questions about the case. What, for example, are the signs and symptoms that support your, your diagnosis and which not? And it is also slow them down and to switch from the system one to system two to correct, for example, mistakes and then to move on. But I firmly believe it's a combination of these two systems that together bring you to become a better doctor. But it's not that one is better than the other, but it's always an interaction of both. Is the idea behind this to understand how people learn and perhaps try and speed up the learning process? I wonder if there's a danger if people learn things too quickly, they become overconfident and being too confident is something which can perhaps lead to misdiagnosis. Uh, indeed, and that's that's absolutely true. We are also one part of the research now, also involving the neuroimaging, is to look 
uh, not only how can you learn to diagnose these cases that we give them. For example, we use mainly chest x-rays to diagnose. It's, it's easy because it's just an image and you can look at it and diagnose this, this image. And large criticism was always, similar to what you mentioned, that yeah, is, it, is it not too easy because it's just simple pattern recognition and you think you know it all and you just uh, diagnose these images. But uh, uh, to counter that criticism, we went on and did some studies where we presented uh, the participants after we trained them in always repeating the same images, images that were slightly different, that still represented the same medical condition, but they were slightly different. For, for example, the localization was different. First of all, in the left lobe of the lung and then the right. And uh, we even were more tricky and, and had, had representations that were totally atypical for that medical condition. And we had cases that were totally unrelated. And what do you see is that through this simple approach by cont continuously showing the same image, that more is happening because the participants, they're all capable of transferring their knowledge to other uh, similar cases, some very similar and some rather abstract. But even the abstract ones were still better than the cases that were unrelated, which gives us kind of hope that it's not just rote learning and, and result overconfidence, but uh, you are also able then to transfer that knowledge uh, to other cases because, in fact, every patient is uh, a transfer of your knowledge uh, between between patients, that is actually the diagnostic process, and and there we try now to do more a more targeted kind of approach during learning already to show them different representations and to see whether that helps uh, being less overconfident and being able to apply their knowledge to a larger variety of different cases. Am I right in thinking that the neuroimages are taken from system two and you've not yet managed to fully understand system one? That, that's true because. It has to do with actually the scanning technique that we apply. It is, uh, we use what is called uh, FNIRS, as a functional near infrared spectroscopy. It measures uh, the level of oxygenated blood in the brain. The problem with this approach is, is that it can only, the system can only penetrate the brain roughly two to three centimeters. So there's only the cortical area of the brain, so the outer layer of the brain. And uh, that system one reasoning, which is, is an activation of more specialized areas in the brain that are most likely more deeper, like in the hippocampus, or this is something that we cannot reach with our brain imaging uh, system. Uh, fMRI uh, can do that because it's a whole brain scan where you can uh, penetrate the entire brain. Uh, we, we have now one project where we try to extend it because then we can see, hey, from system two, where is system one? Where does it go to? Uh, and that is certainly something to, to look at. But it is, it is quite tricky because it is really not known at the moment where this specialized center of the brain really lies. It really depends on, on what kind of skill or kind of expertise you're talking about. When it comes to psychomotor expertise, like sports or dancing that it studies, uh, where a lot of movement is involved, we know where, they, where the, the, the motor part of the brain is that coordinates this kind of uh, hand-eye movement. But when it comes to cognitive tasks, it is not really clear where it is. And that makes it a little bit tricky, but uh, it's an exciting new thing to look at. And we, we try to do that first with a small batch of participants. It's a little bit difficult now with COVID-19, I must say. Our research has stopped quite significantly because it's difficult to do this kind of research with a distance measure in place. Uh, but that is certainly something we're quite, quite keen to look at. What's exciting, I guess, in the short term is that this is having impacts not just in medicine, but also in places like aviation and sport. Mainly everywhere where there's decision-making involved, where is some kind of analytical processing is involved, where heuristics, pattern recognition is involved, uh, this has implications. But we are now working with one part 
that is, uh, we have some data, but it's too early really to talk about this. But what is really the exciting part for us, for, for our research lab in the future, is to look at biases, because all these errors are in fact caused by biases, medical biases, uh, biases in, in reasoning and decision-making. Because it, it turns out that if you look at uh, also misdiagnosis, that clinicians have the knowledge, but just something went wrong in, in their reasoning. And that is quite quite interesting. It's not a lack of knowledge, really. So looking at, at biases, and in our paradigm, we try to introduce biases and then see, is there any neural marker? That means any activation in a certain part of the brain that would signify that leads to a bias. Or is there a moment where maybe people hesitate when they make a decision? Or is this decision-making a different combination of brain activation? Now, if you have this, is the holy grail, really, to, to medicine, because then... You could hook people up on the machine and say, now think about this patient and uh, what is, and now this is a bias, get out of it. Uh, because it seems now once you end up in, in a bias, you have a tunnel vision, you can't get out. There's really interesting research, for example, uh, how to introduce a bias. You can do that experimentally. There are quite interesting studies that uh, they have conducted. For example, if you have a bunch of doctors and you show them, uh, for example, in the morning or the day before, uh, a documentary or gives them some information about, uh, at the moment here, dengue is a, is a big issue in Singapore. And you would say, look, this is a huge uh, problem and we have an explosion in cases. And later on, let's say at the end of the day or the next day, you would show them cases where you uh, present uh, the patients who have similar signs and symptoms as, as you would expect through dengue, that would represent dengue, but it's not. That doctors are very much inclined to misdiagnose this dengue. And it is very easy, actually, to do because it's the tunnel vision, it's the system one, and there they make a mistake. But then if you ask them to rethink all the signs and symptoms and what would, be, what would you expect to really be there to be dengue, what is not there, what are alternative hypotheses, what are differential diagnoses that you can come up with, then they correct the mistake. That is the switch then to system one as a correction. So then it's always a, a combination of both. But if you could kind of detect on a brain level this kind of bias that occurs in the brain, that would be really a, really a breakthrough. How would you start to implement this data? Are we talking a few years down the line or are there some aspects of the data we can use in the short term? I think it, it still will take a, take a while. The only practical implications, what I, what I, implication of the research that I now see is it could be used as a diagnostic tool to help medical students, for example, uh, learn to diagnose a certain set of cases. Uh, for example, if you uh, the, the system that we use, one advantage also is that it is totally non-invasive. It's just a cap that you put on. The calibration takes a minute, and then you have a full uh, high-resolution brain scan. Uh, the technology there adva- is uh, so advanced and is advancing. It's it's amazing. Five years ago, the machine was as big as a washing machine. Now it's as big as an iPad. With these developments, if you could say, look, we have a whole battery of diagnostic uh, tests. So we, we, we let, for example, students diagnose certain x-rays and we see where are your learning difficulties. For this, you rely more on system two. So uh, you have to really uh, see more of these cases. And then we have developed this system, this adaptive learning system. So it will then show more of these cases until you are good at it and don't rely on uh, system two reasoning anymore. It, it became system one. And then we move on to the next batch of cases. And that could help as kind of neurologically guided learning tool. But yeah, we have to see if this really works because then you have to see how accurate is it. And you could also, you know, use just conventional assessments to, to, to see whether you get the right diagnosis or not. But this would just be something to, uh, to explore further. So what are the next steps for your research? 
It is now, first of all, do more research on uh, how can we optimize learning informed through the neuroimaging. Can we see there are certain patterns? How, how does it work? How is it more effective to add on to behavioral indicators that we know are limited in telling us or giving us this information? So we, how can we use neuroimaging to get a richer, richer information? That is, that is number one. Once we understand better how this learning takes place, I'm very excited to then apply it to other contexts like the air traffic controllers, what I mentioned, but also to education in general. Look, for example, uh, this system, what we use, this, this FNIRS, is also used with infants. I wouldn't go so far, but for example, in primary school kids, I have two young children, and I, I see that certain parts in maths, they don't understand, or language learning. And I hope that once we understand the basic learning process, that maybe this can also be used there and do more research uh, in this context and uh, just extend it further. So my my aim is to get more researchers from other domains involved, share experiences, because they have also done a lot of research in psychology, for example, and they are far further than, than what we are with neuroimaging. So, but to link up with them and see where are the parallels, how can we do a multidisciplinary project, and how can we further uh, extend this, this line of research in a broader context. I must say this is also very much encouraged here in Singapore from, from with the grants that we get that we do this kind of uh, cross-cutting research. But that, I think, is quite interesting to, uh, to embark in the next, I would say, five, six years. Assistant Professor Jerome Rotgens. That's all for this episode. Next time, I'll be speaking with Klaas Kahlgren, who started his career looking at human-machine interactions. This has led him into the research area of designing technology to support and analyse learning in medical education and to understand the gaps and challenges that students run into during their learning activities. For now, goodbye.